I'm Bill Teeter, I'm one of the trauma intensivists, as I know most of you. Uh, but I'm here to introduce uh, Dr. James Manning. Um, he is an adjunct professor at the University of North Carolina, where he is retired from clinical work of over 30 years there in the Department of Emergency Medicine. He has been DOD funded for about that exact same amount of time continuously, to my knowledge. And for our talk specifically today, he does many things, but specifically for our talk today, uh, he developed a technology called uh, Selective Aortic Arch Perfusion, or SAP, in the uh, 1980s. And without further ado, uh, Dr. Jim Manning. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk about this. I, uh, some, that's obviously my passion. I've been working on it for a very long time, so I appreciate the chance to, to talk with you about it. Um, just quick disclosures, uh, there are a, a set of patents that uh, for this technology, selective aortic arch perfusion that were signed to the University of North Carolina. I have uh, received Department of Defense funding through grants and also an SBIR grant to uh, a company I co-founded, Resuscitech. They developed that so that we could actually have a catheter we could uh, push into clinical trials, which we're trying to do and trying to get through the FDA regulatory process right now. But there's nothing on the market. I'm not selling anything. So everything we'll be talking about is the, the science behind this technique. So this is what it looks like. Um, and probably some of you are looking at it going, yeah, it looks like Reboa. Well, I understand that because it is a balloon catheter that's placed in the femoral artery up to the thoracic aorta. So it does look an awful lot like a balloon catheter. But Selective aortic arch perfusion, or SAP, is, is principally an extracorporeal perfusion therapy. The purpose of it is to actually perfuse the heart and the brain during cardiac arrest in order to achieve return of spontaneous circulation, get the heart beating again, keep the brain alive. And the reason for the balloon is actually to make sure that all the perfusion that's going through that catheter initially, taking an exogenous oxygen care, goes as much as possible to the heart and the brain and nowhere else. So that was the purpose of the balloon from the outset, although in trauma it also does have that hemorrhage control um, component to it. So just to quickly go back and talk a little bit about historically where have we been in cardiac arrest and what has sort of led up to this present-day evolution into what we're calling endovascular extracorporeal resuscitation. Well, this really all kind of got started in the 1960s with the, the, the um, description of closed chest cardiac massage. Prior to that, resuscitation was pretty much well. There was some defibrillation. There were some resuscitations with open chest um, uh, heart massage. But for the most part, if you had a cardiac arrest, you were dead. But 1960s changed that. It, it was widely taught. And over the decades, since then, Heart Association has, has progressively um, modified the, the recommendations for basic life support, the closed chest CPR and ventilations, and the, uh, the drugs that we use. And I think everybody that's listening here has surely probably been through an ACLS course, so you're well familiar with the ACLS algorithms and stuff, all the things that have happened over recent years. In the 1990s, probably biphasic defibrillation and the development of actually um, – uh, as we got into the 20s, the development of AEDs, the automated external defibrillation is probably one of the biggest advances we've had in resuscitation, the ability to defibrillate people very quickly before um, their VTAP has degraded to the point that they can't uh, be resuscitated by uh, just quick defibrillation. So those are the big things that happen. As we get to 2010, we begin to actually have these advances that begin to move into the extracorporeal um, and endovascular realm with uh, the use of ECMO some in, in, in hospital, but then beginning in the mid-2010s, uh, around 20, uh, 2014, 2015, the use of uh, Reboa and uh, ECMO in the field. 
And that's kind of where we are headed now. This is the area that we're, we're, we're beginning to push into. There's more and more, pay, more, and more uh, centers are using ECMO for cardiac arrest. Reboa is certainly um, being used widespread, but we're pushing these technologies into the field. And this is the exciting part of this, because I think it's where we need to be taking these technologies. I sort of have four things I'll just try to touch on. The first is the most important. I, this is my mantra, I guess, in resuscitation, is that perfusion is the key to resuscitation. For all of the time we've been trying to resuscitate patients over the last 60 years or more, this is our Achilles heel. We do everything else pretty well. Ventilations, drugs, other things, defibrillation, all of that we do quite well. It's the perfusion part of this that is our really our serious weak link. And we're addressing that now with endovascular resuscitation, extracorporeal perfusion. Resuscitation is not a one-size-fits-all. So we have algorithms that are very well intended to try to help guide resuscitation, but not all cardiac arrests are the same. We all kind of intuitively know that. And what we really need is, is monitoring capabilities so that we can actually tell what's going on with the individual patient and tailor the care to the individual patient. Epinephrine, despite all the controversy and stuff, I think is beneficial if it is given effectively. And what I mean by effectively is intra-arterial, intra-aortic, not IV. I'll try to touch on that um, toward the end of this lecture. And a key thing that we all can understand is that the time window for resuscitation, when you go into a cardiac arrest, you only have a limited amount of time to actually uh, reverse this and have patients survive and have good neurologic recovery, which is why the sooner we can, we can intervene, the better. And that means we've got to get these technologies and capabilities into the field. And that's been my goal for 30 plus years now. So again, perfusion is the key. This is the mantra. Perfusion is the key to resuscitation. And uh, this is the key thing to remember. And this is the reason that we have extracorporeal perfusion and vascular resuscitation now emerging. We go back to, well, let's look at Close chest CPR. When we do chest compressions, what exactly is happening? Maybe you probably know this, but just by quick review. What drives blood flow during chest compressions is what's called the coronary perfusion pressure. This is the aortic pressure minus the right atrial pressure. And it just so happens that pressure gradient is the greatest, not during the compression phase, but during the relaxation phase. So we really sort of define coronary perfusion pressure as the CPR diastolic uh, CPP, which is the diastolic AOP, aortic pressure versus minus the, uh, the, the diastolic right atrial pressure during the, the relaxation phase of, of chest compressions. And this has been shown both in laboratory studies and in humans to correlate with myocardial blood flow and the ability to get return of spontaneous circulation. So it, it is an effective uh, um, uh, parameter to follow. This is what uh, chest compressions look like in a human. And this is back, uh, actually is a uh, monitoring case in back in 1996 that I did where you can see the compressions are, the systolic pressures are going well over 120, probably because 140. And you can see where the diastolic pressures are, which are, you know, less than 30. This is the aortic pressure and right atrial pressure combined, but with a close-up on the diastolic phase. You can see the upper tracing is the, is the aortic pressure. The lower tracing is the right atrial pressure. And this distance between the two is the coronary perfusion pressure. In this particular patient, that coronary perfusion pressure is about 30 millimeters of mercury, which is actually quite good. Coronary perfusion pressure has been shown to be an effective uh, 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 parameter for determining whether somebody will get return of spontaneous circulation or not. It has been shown, again, both in, in, in humans and in laboratory studies, that you have to have a coronary perfusion pressure, a minimum of 15 millimeters of mercury in order to get, to get return of spontaneous circulation. The higher, the better. If you can get to 20, 30, 40, the higher the coronary perfusion pressure, the greater the chances of actually being successful with ROSC. 
but you got to have at least 15 millimeters of mercury, or you probably don't have enough to even overcome uh, vascular resistance to get any blood flow at all. Most studies have shown that the, the chest compressions we have typically done and taught over all these past several decades, generally, if done well and done early, will generate maybe 25% to a third of normal blood flow. And the problem is, is that if there's a time delay between the onset of cardiac arrest and the beginning of CPR, as, as, the, uh, as the arterial system vasodilates, the, uh, the, the amount of blood flow that you can get with CPR begins to decrease. And also, as time goes on, if you're doing CPR, and if you're doing good CPR, with time, you will eventually have some degradation in the actual amount of blood flow. So it's time limited. It's not, it's not as robust a perfusion as I think would be useful for us to be able to get more patients uh, to ROSC. And the thing is, in, in, in the hemorrhage-induced hypovolemia, in those hemorrhagic shock patients where they've bled out to the point they've gone to a cardiac arrest, they're so hypovolemic that blood flows essentially almost nothing. And this is one of the big problems, particularly with chest compressions and, and, uh, and hemorrhagic shock or hemorrhagic shock arrest have, has very little effect. So I conceptualized, I first started working on uh, selective aortic arch perfusion in, uh, in, in, as, a, as a therapy for non-traumatic or medical cardiac arrest. You can see this is actually the, the first um, the publication. It was in, in, in 1992. It just so happens that last month in September was the 30-year anniversary of uh, this first publication. And I, it sort of struck me as I was looking at this, I was thinking it says a selective air perfusion, a new resuscitation technique. And I had no idea that that new word would um, have such staying power because here it is 30 years later. We haven't quite gotten it. It's still sort of considered a novel therapy, even though it's, it's, uh, it was described 30 years ago. So that's sort of a joke, but joke's on me, unfortunately. Now, the inspiration for working on or thinking about selective aortic heart perfusion really kind of came from Peter Sapper. During the 1980s, when I was um, doing my residency and resuscitation fellowship and trying to study a blood flow in CPR, the, um, the, the Peter Sapper was in the laboratory looking at cardiopulmonary bypass as a therapy for medical cardiac arrest. And it was really quite effective. And, but the problem was that if you, if you, and you, and you um, remember back to the, the 1980s, and I figured for the most part, many of but in the 1980s, cardiopulmonary bypass was a huge cart with several pumps. It took probably two people to wheel this thing around anywhere, like in the operating theater. So it was not something that was potentially practical for uh, the pre-hospital care setting, but it did work very well. Bottom line was is that extracorporeal perfusion with a cardiopulmonary bypass system was very effective in treating cardiac arrest and getting return of spontaneous circulation. So then the question, well, why is that? Why the balloon catheter? What's, what's the purpose of doing this as opposed to trying to do bypass? The things that I was looking for in trying to come up with a way to uh, resuscitate people that use some sort of extracorporeal perfusion was something that would be real minimally invasive. Now, Putting in a, a, a thoracic aortic balloon catheter didn't seem minimally invasive, certainly not at that time, but it was certainly less invasive than, uh, than putting somebody on full cardiopulmonary bypass. The most important thing is to perfuse the heart and the brain. You've got to perfuse the heart well enough. As I said, perfusion is the key. You've got to perfuse the heart well enough to get the heart beating again. But I also wanted to perfuse the brain to keep it, to sustain perfu you know, uh, the survival of the brain until we could get return of circulation and have the heart take over. Wanted it to be something that could be initiated relatively quickly. And so if you could put in just a smaller aortic catheter or a smaller arterial catheter and only have one catheter and begin resuscitation, that seemed to be an advantage over having to put in two large cannulas in order to start 
cardiopulmonary bypass or in present-day ECMO. And the last thing was that from the outside, the idea of SAP was to take a therapy that would, that would provide extracorporeal perfusion and put it in the field where these patients are dying. So a simplified, simplified uh, perfusion system uh, to a perfusion technique that could be taken as a pre-hospital care setting for cardiac arrest was really that those are the key things I was looking for for trying to develop SAP. Now, it begins with using some sort of, the idea is to begin with some sort of exogenous oxygen carrier. So you can take either, I, at the time I first started working on this, there are a whole bunch of companies working on hemoglobin and fluorocarbon uh, uh, blood, blood substitutes, essentially. We call them blood substitutes. They would just call them oxygen carriers. Um, and if, if, even though I, I may feel a sense of frustration that I've been working on SAP for 30 years trying to get it out there, Anybody should be more frustrated than me as the people have been trying to work on some sort of exogenous oxygen carrier that you could, because there's not a, a hemoglobin or fluorocarbon on the, the, the market at present in the United States. And uh, the people have been working on these for quite a number of years before even I started working on SAP. But it, an oxygen carrier would work if we ever get one across the FDA line and, and into clinical practice. But stored alginate blood, fresh whole blood, will work as well. This is what SAP looks like. See, the, the, the closure of the aortic valve, the coronary arteries uh, perfuse quite well. You can see the balloon off to the right side. Now, one of the key things about this technique that we learned after, after some, several experiments was that you want to, it's important to close the aortic valve in order to get good perfusion. That is really a key thing to do. If you don't close the aortic valve, path of least resistance is from the aorta into the left ventricle, left atrium, back into the pulmonary circuit. You can get a beautiful pulmonary venogram, which is not what we want. Uh, so closing the aortic valve is actually key to this. So I'm going to try to show this just one more time. We just watch this and watch the aortic valve closes, then the coronaries light up. So perfusion of the coronaries happens after the aortic valve has been closed uh, sufficiently to generate enough pressure in the aorta to perfuse the coronaries. And that's a key thing in performing SAP is to close the aortic valve first. And we do that with a rapid bolus to uh, close the valve, then begin the, 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 the uh, rest of the SAP infusion at a lower rate. And I can cover that a little bit more. So if you look at what kind of myocardial blood flow you get, remember I was mentioning that, that CPR, most closed chest CPR would get you about 25 to 30% of normal blood flow. If you look at this graph, there were some different ways of doing SAP, and we tested three different ones using colored microspheres. To the left is the pre-arrest blood flow before the cardiac arrest. Then after 10 minutes of cardiac arrest, you can see in the center doing chest compressions that the blood flow is really low, especially after 10 minutes starting CPR that you just don't get, uh, there's enough vasodilation, you don't get much blood flow. But, the, but all of the SAP means of doing this, no matter how we did these little variations on SAP, all of them generated not just adequate or better blood flow, but supranormal blood flow. We were actually generating more blood flow to the myocardium than the heart is beating itself. Now, this may seem at first because, well, how could you possibly do that? The thing is, remember that the heart, when it's beating on its own, is only being perfused during diastole. During cardiac arrest, you can perfuse the heart continuously, so you can actually get really high flow and excellent perfusion of the heart, which is why this technique works so well in a laboratory setting and hopefully will when we get into clinical practice. Step one, as I mentioned, is to use SAT with an exogenous oxygen carrier, which will be in a medical cardiac arrest where they're not hypovolemic, will be volume limited. You can only push in so much fluid before you begin to get volume overload, maybe about a liter and a half, which would be about two full minutes of SAP perfusion if you did it continuously. During that initial 
sap infusion with an exogenous oxygen carrier. The idea is to get femoral venous access so that if you need it, you can then begin to pull off the patient's own autologous blood, run it back through the oxygenated perfusion system that you're using for the, to perform SAP, and then you can do what I called 25 years ago autologous blood SAP. But another way of actually naming this gives you, if you think about it, it's really essentially the same as doing ECMO just to the aortic arch. It's the equivalent. So, and, and there's no further net volume loading. So you can do this for an extended period of time as needed to, uh, to get return of circulation, only really limited by the, uh, the, the balloon time. But it's, but it's the second step. After that, once you've used alcoholic blood, once you get the heart beating again, you, and, and especially in a medical cardiac arrest where there's no hemorrhage below the level of the balloon, you want to get the balloon deflated as quickly as possible to perfuse everything because everything below that's going to be ischemic. In doing so, by letting the balloon down, if the heart has not fully recovered, it's still stunned, it's not functioning adequately or not generating enough perfusion, you can, through the catheter with the SAP catheter with the balloon down, give up to probably with the catheter that's going to go into the clinical trials, probably a liter, maybe 1,200 mils per minute of oxygenated perfusion to the whole body. So essentially the equivalent of like partial VA ECMO, which could be used either to give the heart a little bit of time to recover or as a bridge if the patient's going to need more ongoing long-term support as a bridge to get the patient to full VA ECMO, getting larger cannulas in. And that's really the final step is to, if the patient is going to need more, is going to need more prolonged perfusion support, SAP is not going to be able to give that kind of support, not like ECMO does. But so if the, if the patient, if you get return of circulation, but the heart is just not recovering fast enough, may need to then transition them to full VA ECMO. But then, but, but SAP can act as a, at least initially a resuscitation, return of circulation, and then act as a bridge to VA ECMO if needed. So one of the things that I like in terms of resuscitation as a goal would be is to be able to escalate the level of care as, as, as needed to achieve return of spontaneous circulation and get stabilization, but not to go beyond what's absolutely necessary to actually save the patient. So when you think about, okay, so how does this sort of fit into the overall picture of what we're doing in resuscitation, our standard therapies and ECMO and other things? Extracorporeal um, endovascular extracorporeal resuscitation has really developed from two directions. From the, from the hemorrhage control side, Reboa came along as a, uh, as a means of managing non-compressible torso hemorrhage. And, uh, and, and this is really in trauma for those patients, you know, like in the military with IEDs who are getting shrapnel pushed up in the abdomen or, uh, you know, a whole host of, of uh, blunt traumas, penetrating trauma with a city abdomen where you can't get hemorrhage control. This is a way of actually uh, providing hemorrhage control. So Reboa was really the, the, the key um, intervention on the endovascular hemorrhage control side. On the uh, extracorporeal perfusion side, as ECMO devices became smaller, more portable, and transport ECMO devices were developed, they could then be moved around more easily, and it was possible to then put some select medical cardiac arrest patients on ECMO as well. So this is this is where this, this is these two really sort of developed roughly sort of the same time in the early sort of uh, 2010s for um, for hemorrhage control and for extracorporeal perfusion support. Now SAP actually is on both sides of this because SAP kind of has a foot on both ends of this because it balloon does actually as a hemorrhage control device and perfusion actually allows for for treatment of the hemorrhagic uh, shock blood loss. But it also is an extracorporeal perfusion therapy for cardiac arrest, for medical cardiac arrest, and we really developed for that. 
together, the, we're actually seeing that these are actually coming closer together, where Reboa is being considered for medical cardiac arrest, ECMO is now being used for trauma. And, and so we're now sort of, they're, they're coming together so to be sort of an interventional toolkit that can be used for both medical and trauma cardiac arrest as needed and tailored to the needs of the individual patient. Reboa, as a quick review, I think people probably are well aware of this, is that Reboa in trauma is arterial hemorrhage control below the level of the balloon. Uh, not only do you get hemorrhage control or, or, or control of any arterial hemorrhage below the level of the balloon, but it also increases systemic vascular resistance and increases the mean arterial pressure. And it, it can does that quite effectively as long as the heart is actually beating. If you've got a beating heart that can generate the pressure above the balloon, that's where you get the, uh, the, the bump in the mean arterial pressure. So in one Reboa for those cases where it's unclear where the bleeding is below the level of the diaphragm, uh, and it's a nice uh, case series that was um, presented and, and uh, that came out of the Maryland Shock Trauma Center um, describing the use of zone one Reboa in, in severe hemorrhagic shock. The, um, the use of, of zone one Reboa in medical cardiac arrest has begun to, 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 to generate interest. And the idea is that, well, if it does increase systemic vascular resistance, if it does that during CPR, it would be kind of like mechanical epinephrine. It still requires, Reboa alone will not raise the blood pressure by itself, but it, you have to have something that's generating a pressure uh, above the level of the balloon. That would be required by the chest compressions. It does also allow for aortic pressure monitoring. You can even give intraaortic epinephrine if that's, uh, if that's deemed appropriate. But this is early. We're not really clear how effective Reboa is in medical cardiac arrest, but people are looking at it, and there's some studies that are ongoing now. They're one in Norway and this one in Yale. The early data from uh, the Norway group showed, um, looking at entitled CO2 as a surrogate for blood flow, showed that um, there was they, they had some improvement overall on average in entitled CO2. Among the nine graphs that they actually had individual graphs, there were three that responded quite well, three that didn't seem to have much of an effect and three that were sort of somewhere in between. So it's a little bit variable in terms of response, but there does, the data does show some promise potentially for Reboa and medical cardiac arrest. Let's talk briefly about ECMO. So one of the more famous pictures for ECMO is here's the, uh, the, the, the SAMU uh, team in Paris that does ECMO in the field, uh, putting a patient in the Louvre on, uh, on ECMO. Um, and it's, it's, it's just really dry. I first saw this in 2014. I was absolutely stunned by this photo. This is one where I was actually there in Paris with the SAMU team, and this patient was put on, on ECMO. It was a 50-year-old gentleman that had a, a just a, a defib cardiac arrest and collapsed. And you look and say, well, you can see the, you can see the cannulas, you can see the, uh, the ECMO apparatus and stuff. So where exactly are we? We're in a corridor in the Gare du Nord, the North train station. So they, they since the early mid um, 2010s, um, Paris has actually had a team set up to go into the field and put people in ECMO. I first heard about this in, in 2014, and uh, I think they started around 2013, 2014. So they've actually now, for about a decade, almost have been doing ECMO in the field for select medical cardiac arrests. So if you look at, we'll say, ECMO or extracorporeal CPR, as it's called, we start with patients that are that are receiving the standard things we've been doing for many years, the CPR, ACLS, all the, the latest iterations of that, and take them all the way to full VA, ECMO, full cardiopulmonary support. And, uh, and, and so it's a big leap. That's a major change in, in, in uh, resource allocation and in level of intervention. 
the idea for SAP and medical cardiac arrest, um, after being studied in, in a series of laboratory studies showing that it was beneficial, um, this is this is sort of an example for so in a V-fib cardiac arrest of SAP, where you get CPR on the left, we do an initial bolus uh, to close the aortic valve, you see, and we begin the SAP infusion, and then the V-fib is, is this is a compressed uh, uh, V-fib. Um, EKG, so it looks like it's pretty active, but it's really not nearly as, it does not have as high a frequency. But you can see as it moves to the left, it gets tighter and tighter and more dense, and that's showing a greater increase in energy uh, level of the V-fib. And then we're able to, uh, and we're not doing, any, not doing any chest compressions at all, nothing else, just perfusion with oxygenated uh, perfusate. And then we're able to, at the point where we see that the V-fib uh, wave pattern is strong enough, we shock them and we're able to shock them back into a normal rhythm. So what SAP does is it gives you three steps before going all the way to full VA ECMO. Now, the first being the exogenous oxygen carry that you take with you into the field, hopefully. And then the second is go is switching to autologous blood. So it's essentially the same as, as ECMO to the aortic arch, what we call, uh, called autologous blood SAP. And then if you get return of circulation and the heart is still not beating adequately, let the balloon down and give partial um, ECMO support full body until the heart either rapidly recovers, shows more improvement, or to use that as a bridge until you can get the larger cannulas in for full VA ECMO. And so that's the idea. It gives you the setwise approach so that you can actually, hopefully in these cardiac arrest patients, you can, you can um, tailor the care, how aggressive you need to be, um, to get return circulation, stabilize them so you can get them to the hospital, to the cath lab, to the OR, to interventional radiology, wherever it is that they need to go. Um, and and at, you only have to intervene up to the level that the patient actually needs. Maybe it's just an exogenous oxygen carry. If you get them back fairly quickly, they're pretty good and stable. You stop the perfusion. You watch them. If they look okay, pull the cap and stop. If they if they're if you can get return circulation and pretty stable hemodynamics with just autologous blood. Let the balloon down, still stable, everything looks good, pull the cat or stop. If, um, if you need to let the balloon down, continue to perfuse and uh, allow some, some uh, continued perfusion support. If they rapidly stabilize, great. If they don't, in the meantime, what you're doing is you're getting ready to, to uh, put in the larger cannula so you can put them to full VA ECMA because SAP is not able to provide more sustained long-term full body support. The advantages of SAP and medical cardiac arrest is potentially the time perfusion support. If all you have to do is put in a relatively smaller arterial catheter to begin perfusion support, you should be able to do that faster than getting both arterial and venous cannulas in for VA ECMO. Um, the sequential interventions, as I just mentioned, offer the opportunity to, to give more of an escalating set of interventions that may be, be successful before going all the way to full VA ECMO with large cannulas. And also the, 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 the ability to discontinue. If the patient's pretty stable, you can stop at any point along the way, pull the catheter. You've just got the introducer in, which is probably we're going to start with like a 12-inch introducer to put the SAP catheter in, and, uh, and you, you, that would end. If you put somebody on VA ECMO with the larger cannulas, you're not going to be taking them off in an hour or in 30 minutes or even probably a couple of hours. They are most likely going to be on VA ECMO support for a day or so at least, probably more commonly several days up to a week before you're going to actually decannulate them, take them to the OR and remove The limitations of SAP and medical cardiac arrest is initially volume loading, there's no doubt. And, um, and, and so if you, have, if you have a euvolemic or a euvolemic cardiac arrest patient, you begin to push in volume, you're going to be limited by time 
before you have to move to the autologous blood um, uh, sap modality. And it, again, it cannot provide sustained support. If somebody's going to need perfusion support over a period of several days, this can only be a bridge to get the larger cannulas in so that you can actually put them on full VA ECMO support as it's presently being done. What about SAP in hemorrhage-induced cardiac arrest? Now, I started out studying SAP at, for, in medical cardiac arrest models, and that was what appeared, and that was the reason for actually developing it. But once I did that, I began to think about its use in traumatic cardiac arrest. I had to admit it was almost more made to order for trauma cardiac arrest than for medical cardiac arrest. And um, so, so let's do a comparison of, say, Reboa and SAP in this case. Now, the, actually, both names tell you exactly what they do. Reboa, the, the principal intervention is balloon occlusion of the aorta. That's primarily what Reboa does. The primary intervention for SAP is actually aortic perfusion. The, the, again, it is, it is primarily an extracorporeal perfusion technique to, to uh, perfuse the heart and get the heart beating again. But it also um, uh, allows for volume uh, restoration. Now, just very quickly to show what happens in a in a hemorrhagic shock model if um, if you whether you have just profound hypotension and impending cardiac arrest as opposed to a true cardiac arrest. Because we have, sometimes when you get into trauma, we're looking at patients that if we can't feel a pulse and we can't feel and we can't um, uh, measure a blood pressure with a blood pressure cuff, we say that they're in a traumatic cardiac arrest. Whereas they may actually still have electrical complexes and may actually have cardiac contractility and may be profoundly hypotensive but still generating some blood pressure. In profoundly hypotensive um, cases, even if, if the heart's beating and generating some forward blood flow, even at a mean arterial pressure of down as low as 20 millimeters of mercury, which you cannot measure, you can get a bump in mean arterial pressure. And if you're doing this at the same time as you're giving blood, you can probably resuscitate some of these patients. On the other hand, if you're just doing balloon occlusion in a true cardiac arrest state where there's no generated blood pressure by the myocardium, you really don't get um, much of any, you really don't get any blood pressure change at all. The only um, pressure you're going to get is what you're able to generate with, uh, with, with chest compressions, which we already know in a hypovolemic state is limited. So this is why actually Roboa in, in trauma, it's better to use it earlier before you get to the actual state of true cardiac arrest because it's going to be less effective. It's clearly a more effective tool earlier on. This is the first trauma study that was published using SAP. And we actually looked at the use of a hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier because we had to hope that it was going to make it through the FDA and be the thing that we could use. It would be easier to use an HBOC than whole blood. The logistics in the pre-hospital care setting, it's clearly easier to have a room temperature stable um, uh, hemoglobin than to have um, you know, blood that's going to have to be stored carefully and, and warmed. And there's just a, a whole list of issues and stuff. But in this initial um, uh, publication, which came out in Critical Care Medicine in 2001, we did note that the thoracic aortic balloon would act as a functionally aortic cross-clamp and limit further bleeding. But it was primarily perfusion was the key. And what we found was that we arrested, we actually exsanguinated these animals down a severe hemorrhagic shock to the point of true cardiac arrest, asystole, or profound bradycardia with no cardiac contractility whatsoever for a few minutes. And then we're able to resuscitate all of them with the oxygenated HBOC sap, and within about two minutes, we were able to get all of them back. We didn't require any entry or epinephrine, didn't require any chest compressions. There was no internal massagers, nothing else. Just perfusion with an oxygen carrier was enough to get the heart beating again. And again, perfusion is the key to resuscitation. If we do that well, we can get a lot of these hearts back and give these patients a chance to survive. This is what it looks like in a, in a, um, in a hemorrhagic shock model where we, you can see where we have an initial 
uh, bolus to close the aortic valve. And then the perfusion pressure actually may only be about, without intraaortic epinephrine, the perfusion pressure may only be about 25 to 30 millimeters of mercury, which doesn't sound like much. But the key thing is the perfusion. We know when we're doing this, we're doing 10 mils per kilo per minute infusion into the aortic arch. We're getting very good perfusion. We're just not generating a lot of pressure. But typically what we see is we see a return of EKG complexes initially, and the EKG complexes steadily increase in rate. And then when the myocardium has been sufficiently sufficiently recovered in terms of clearing acidosis, reoxygenation, ATP stores being repleted, the heart can begin to beat on its own. I'm going to show you a video from the laboratory here. First, just watch the heart right here and watch it bulge. Right there. That bulging of the heart is the rapid bolus, about 50 mils of fluid that we give in order to to close the aortic valve, and and now we're doing continuous uh, sap perfusion after that. This is a case, this is a laboratory um, uh, experiment in which we exsanguinated this animal down about 40, 50% uh, total blood volume loss to the point of profound hypotension. The heart went into asystole, electrical and mechanical. Obviously, it was not beating before. It's not beating now. Um, we then waited about four minutes, just asystolic, mechanical asystole, then began the infusion. While we started this infusion, I don't have the EKG here, but we began to see EKG complexes beginning to come back. Usually after 15, 20 seconds, we see some EKG complexes come back. The rate steadily picks up. But the myocardium itself is not in a state where it can actually begin to contract yet. It still needs to clear the acidosis, uh, reverse the, uh, the oxygen deficit, rebuild some ATP stores. But then after about one minute of perfusion, we're able to get the myocardium to beat again. And so this is what we're trying to do. As you can see from this, there was no intraortic epinephrine. We were not squeezing the heart. All this is is perfusion. So perfusion with, an, with oxygenated whole blood in this case, that was what it took to, uh, to restore circulation. We have noted in some of our experiments that sometimes when we're doing the infusion, we get the EKG to come back, but the heart's a little bit sluggish. And we've noted that very small doses of intraortic epinephrine can sometimes sort of give a little bit of an inotropic kick to the heart and actually get the heart beating again. So it's one of the things that you can do with, uh, with the, with the, uh, through the SAP catheter is actually to titrate in little bits of a inotrope or something to be able to, to kickstart the heart if it's being sluggish in returning. A study that was published in PLOS Medicine and it was a special issue on trauma back in 2017. Uh, this is work that was done at the U.S. Air Force Lab in San Antonio that uh, did a comparison of Reboa and true cardiac arrest, true hemorrhage-induced cardiac arrest, Reboa versus SAP, principally SAP using uh, fresh whole blood, although we did uh, some SAP with just lactated ringers, actually lactated ringers as sort of an extra control and actually had some of them uh, come back at least for a sh- short period of time. But SAP with, with fresh whole blood clearly was more effective, and that's because it's perfusion. You, you, SAP provides extra forward perfusion to the heart, whereas Reboa, you can get hemorrhage control, but you still have to generate blood flow, and that's with chest compressions. And, and, and the extracorporeal perfusion that SAP provides is just more effective as that. Another study looked at, this is um, done as part of a, a Department of Defense grant, uh, was uh, SAP with threshold blood versus SAP with, uh, with um, a hemoglobin oxygen carrier. We saw similar resuscitation rates in both. We then had them on partial ECMO thereafter until they stabilized, washed them out for four hours, 
And what we saw was whether we were using fresh whole blood or this hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier, the, uh, the return of lactates and the recovery, the hemodynamics and stuff, very similar between the two groups in terms of those that were doing actually really excellent recovery and fair good improving. So uh, both seem to, to be very effective therapies. So when we can get an HBOC available to us, that will certainly make doing SAP in the field easier. We can do fresh whole blood, but the logistics of that is clearly more difficult. So what about um, uh, SAP in traumatic, in traumatic arrest or when there's a thoracic injury? Now we know that if you're principally a thoracic injury or thoracic bleeding, zone or reboa is not helpful in that sense in, 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 for hemorrhage control in that instance if it's primarily in the chest. But what about for, for, for SAP? Because SAP has this extra core perfusion component. We did some studies where we looked at a severe hemorrhagic shock, cardiac arrest, uh, induced cardiac arrest, but also with a large pericardial tamponade. And what we saw was we, we were able to put these the animals in the laboratory into a true cardiac arrest and asystolic arrest. Our hope was that if we were able to do SAP perfusion um, for a few minutes, we might get enough perfusion to the heart that when we release the pericardial tamponade, the heart might start beating again. To our surprise, what we found is that while the pericardial tamp a large pericardial tamponade was still present, when we did the perfusion, the heart started to beat, even with the pericardial tamponade still in place. And this sort of makes sense because the reason, when pericardial tamponade, the heart stops beating. The heart goes into an arrest because it can no longer perfuse itself. So it just, it just stops beating. However, if you extracorporeally perfuse the heart, you can generate enough perfusion to the myocardium that the heart can actually begin to beat. So it won't beat adequately. It won't be able to take over perfusion, but it will at least begin to beat. It shows that it's viable. And what we found was that when we, when we, um, oops, um, when, 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 during the initial phase with, with the tamponade still in place, we actually got fairly interesting. We got, we got uh, aortic pressures that were being generated somewhere in roughly about the, the 60 to 70 range, even with the tamponade in place. And over to the right, you can see these bumps. As we took off 50 mil boluses of the, uh, it was about 200 mil um, uh, pericardial tamponade, and, and as we took the, uh, the 50 mil boluses off, the blood pressure recovered. So it is possible that in, in, in thoracic injuries, it may be possible to still do SAP to try to resuscitate the patients. It may not work as well as, um, as hemorrhage below the level of the diaphragm where you get the hemorrhage control component with the balloon. But if they're in a true cardiac arrest from, uh, from, from uh, trauma, uh, you, you have to do something to try to get the heart beating or perfuse the heart in the brain. And so SAP is not really contraindicated in thoracic injuries. It just may not be quite as effective. This is something we need to further explore in the laboratory and We'll see what happens when we get into clinical trials. So if I do a comparison, typically what we do now in a traumatic cardiac arrest is we do an emergency thoracotomy or resuscitative thoracotomy. And what do you do when you do a thoracotomy? In most of these cases, you cross-clamp the aorta, you do internal cardiac massage, you place IVs and pour blood into them to re replace intravascular volume. And certainly if you do a thoracotomy, you can look to see you know, is there a pericardial tamponade that you need to open? Is there a bleeding artery that you can ligate? Is there something? So there are interventions, there are direct interventions through, a, through a, a thoracotomy that can be done. If you compare that to SAP, what can SAP do by, by comparison? The balloon acts as a functionally ordered cross clamp, so you can get the hemorrhage control. The extracorporeal perfusion provided by SAP is actually superior to open chest cardiac massage. It's super normal blood flow. It's clearly be better than trying to squeeze the heart and generate blood flow. And you can put in IVs, but you can actually 
volume resuscitate very rapidly through the SAP catheter. At 10 mils per kilo per minute, you can effectively restore a 50% blood volume loss in about four to five minutes. The one thing that SAP obviously can't do is it's not, the, the SAP technique itself is not going to allow you to open a pericardial tamponade or clamp a bleeding vessel, but it may be able to give you enough bridging support and therapy so that you can get the patient to um, uh, an operating theater so that those can be done under more controlled circumstances. The advantages of SAP and traumatic cardiac arrest, one, well, achieving return of spontaneous circulation with a perfusion. The rapid intravascular volume restoration, again, at 10 mils per kilo per minute, that's, that's you know, roughly 50% uh, blood volume loss recovered in about four minutes or so. And uh, hemorrhage control, distal to the balloon, basically the same as uh, zone one Reboa, and that's uh, an added dimension for uh, SAP and, and trauma as opposed to medical cardiac arrest. The limitations of it is that, well, it may be less effective in thoracic injury, but still not contraindicated. Um, and it cannot address, you know, specific thoracic injuries. If there's something like a pericardial tamponade, can't do that. And again, just as medical cardiac arrest, if you need sustained ongoing extracorporeal perfusion support, SAP's not going to be able to do that. It can act as a bridge until you can get the larger cannulas in to do uh, um, full body ECMO for a long period of time, but it's not a, it's not capable of doing that itself. So. How do we try to put all of this together? How do you integrate these techniques and how does SAP fit into this in for, you know, for trauma? When to use any of these techniques, whether it's Reboa, SAP, uh, a resuscitated thoracotomy, ECMO, or uh, the other technique that's being worked, that worked on at, uh, at shock trauma, the emergency preservation resuscitation, um, the technique where, where you, you make them profoundly hypo, um, uh, hypothermic, uh, and, and stop the heart, then take them to the operating theater to correct things. Which of these you choose to use is going to be made on an individual basis, and it depends significantly on where you are along the pathway. And um, it, for those patients that are that are hypotensive and uh, in, in hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic shock, but still have a beating heart, still have blood pressure, so they, they, that are they they're not at the point of impending cardiac arrest. These are perfectly reasonable patients to put a Reboa catheter and get hemorrhagic control, increase the systemic vascular resistance, boost the mean arterial pressure, get in IV lines, volume resuscitate them with, uh, with, with blood, and, and then bridge them and get them to the operating theater. If they go into a cardiac arrest, you can switch to a Reboa catheter to a SAP catheter, or if at the point that you're actually getting arterial access to resuscitate them, if they have gone into a, a, a true cardiac arrest or right at the point of just impending and they're going to be in arrest at any moment. Um, those may be patients in which SAP will actually prove to be a more effective therapy because of the perfusion support and the volume restoration that's grabbing. If they, if you get return of circulation and they're relatively unstable, ECMO is an option. If the, if neither ECMO nor, uh, or, nor uh, SAP are actually sufficient, but you think the patients can still be salvageable, um, then depending on their, their injury pattern, EPR, emergency preservation resuscitations. And, and, and still, there are some patients in which you may decide that, that uh, thoracotomy is still the way to go, depending on the injury uh, profile. So this is just a way of sort of thinking about how do we actually potentially approach these. Now, in terms of cardiac arrest, I, and I think this is true for cardiac arrest, in, including both medical and trauma cardiac arrest, is that with the endovascular extracorporeal perfusion therapies that we have, I think we're going to be able to get to where it, we get at least return of circulation 
and, uh, and reasonable chance of survival in we probably get return of circulation in in well over 75 percent potentially but good outcome it, it's a moonshot but the idea of having recovery from from cardiac arrest that is witnessed that we can get to quickly to be greater than 75 percent it's a lofty goal but i think one that we shoot for all of the things that are listed on this slide are things that we are presently doing and and we need to continue to do these and we need to continue to improve them but there are a number of other things we can do that can actually help devices actually recognize cardiac arrest more you know more specialized care a better more tiered response that actually sends uh, um, more advanced providers into the field. And I think one of the key things that we're going to have to do, which is already being done in a lot of places in the world, is sending pre-hospital physicians who are resuscitationists, trained in critical care uh, resuscitation, and uh, are capable of doing endovascular resuscitation, extracorporeal perfusion resuscitation. This is already being done in Paris, London, it's being it's, it's really getting started um, as we speak in uh, Sydney, Australia. They're doing uh, Reboa is being used in uh, in Norway, Sweden. I mean, th there are a bunch of countries. Prague, I think there's actually an ECPR conference going on this week in Prague. So this is where the world's headed. We are headed toward doing more of this in the field, and it's probably going to require at least to begin with pre-hospital physicians who are trained, capable to get into the field fast to be able to do this. And this is one of the things I think that the United States needs to really pick up on. We need to probably have um, um, uh, transport systems instead of getting these patients to ICUs that are really specially designed, almost like just have trauma centers, cardiac arrest centers, resuscitation centers that actually are very good at handling the post-resuscitation care in these patients. So this is these are the things I think that will actually help us get there. Now, just talk about getting in the field, this is something I've wanted to do for a very long time. As a matter of fact, I uh, I, I was I set up a system in in uh, in Orange County in, uh, out around the University of North Carolina where I went out into the field. And this is almost 30 years ago. I was doing this in the middle of the 1990s, where I would go out into the field and put thoracic intravenous pressure casts in patients, measure their coronary perfusion pressure, change CPR to maximize the the uh, coronary perfusion pressure and titrated in small doses of intra-aortic epinephrine, which is a much more effective way of giving epinephrine. I'll just mention this quickly is that the, the, the thing about um, when we get drugs all the time, we, we, we give intravenous drugs all day long without thinking about the fact that we have an intact circulation that actually that gets them to where we want them to their effector sites. And that's true in every patient except for the cardiac arrest patients. So intravenous drugs and cardiac arrest don't really make a lot of sense when the effector sites are like the peripheral arterial system. So delivery systems that allow us to give these drugs rapidly intra-aortic and to the periphery in doses that are small, that are what is the patient actually needs, as opposed to serial overdosing in the intravenous system. It's one of the reasons why I think epinephrine has not been shown to work is because we're not giving it in the right place. We should be giving it to our arterial. But this just shows that you can get into the field. We did this, went into the field, monitored patients, and actually got return of circulation in more than, I think we have return of circulation in 60% of cardiac arrest, 50% made it to the hospital alive. We didn't have the ICU care at the time that we do now. Some of these patients would have survived, I think, long term if we had uh, if we had had the the present day uh, post resuscitation ICU care. But one point is in showing this is that getting into the field and doing endovascular resuscitation is something that can be done. It just takes the the will to actually do it. And this is one of the things that we hope we will be able to. Bill Teeter and I are working on this along with a host of other people. There's a team of people at Shock Trauma that want to actually create an advanced team to do this. 
You presently have the GO team that goes out to select trauma cases. We're hoping to make that an advanced resuscitation GO or ARGO team that will be able to go out and do endovascular and extracorporeal perfusion resuscitation for both medical cardiac arrest patients and trauma cases. And standing up a team that's capable of doing both of those makes uh, logistical sense because it's a lot of resources to allocate to have a full-time team that's capable of doing this. But yet, this is where the world's going, and I think we should try to be leaders in that. So if you look at what Baltimore's done in the past, closed chest CPR came out of Baltimore, positive pressure ventilation, that was SAPR out of Baltimore, um, the combination of those making CPR. Uh, a lot of the work on epinephrine was done by Joseph Redding colleagues out of Baltimore, and certainly the golden hour of trauma. So uh, Baltimore and the University of Maryland uh, systems just have uh, have led the way on a lot of this and hopefully will continue to do so in the near future if we can get funding and get everything structured and set up to uh, to uh, field this uh, Argo team that we're dreaming of. So, And I'll just end by just a quick, um, you know, as I was in Paris um, with the ECMO team um, on one of my trips, and we were called to a young woman in cardiac arrest that actually turned out to be pregnant. And so the resources that were that that made it to the field, there was a SAMU physician team, just a standard SAMU physician. There's seven of those around the, the 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 city of Paris at any time. There was a SAMU team with a physician there. The SAMU ECMO team got there with a physician and a perfusionist. Uh, an emergency obstetrical team got there and did uh, uh, an emergency C-section on the floor. And they had an emergency uh, pediatric neonatal resuscitation team that was there to resuscitate the baby. And, uh, and I was just absolutely stunned to see this. How in the world do you mobilize that level of resources that fast to the pre-hospital care setting? And I, I was speaking with uh, the, the director of the SAMU for many, many years is Professor Pierre Carly, very well known. And I just looked at him and said, how in the world do you do this? And he just looked at me and said, it is not a matter of knowledge. It is a matter of organization. And his point is absolutely correct. We have the technology. We have the knowledge. We have the capability. We have everything we need to actually go into the field rapidly, get to these severely injured and ill or cardiac arrest patients, and perform this level of endovascular extracorporeal perfusion resuscitation we can do this now. It's just a matter of us organizing it, committing the resources, and putting the system together. And uh, once we do that, we'll be able to do this. And so that's what we are hoping for. That's what we're shooting for. I thank you very much for your time, and uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions if I can.